Well, it's great to meet with you today and for us to, to gather through technology to open up God's Word. Um, if you're new today, then welcome. Um, it may be helpful for us just to give you some kind of backdrop as to what we've looked at over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, in the summer, we spent time looking at the subject of love. And we spent time looking at both vertical and horizontal love. God's love towards us, our love towards God, and also our love towards one another. And it really was helpful for us to study God's word, to apply the truths of God's word to our lives as we thought about this subject. Uh, this morning we're starting a brand new series uh, on 1 Corinthians. Uh, when I say brand new or new, it's not really new for us. Uh, we're going back into the series. We started it two years ago. Um, and at different points over the last two years, we've dipped into this book, uh, not in a random way, but rather in chronological order, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And so today we come back into 1 Corinthians and we're doing so right up until the end of November. And then we'll go into our Christmas series uh, after that. Uh, I'm so aware just of how quickly this year has gone by in the midst of all of the challenge we faced and all of the surprise. And I'm thankful that every single day God is sustaining us, God is helping us, God is equipping us. Even though it might not feel like that at different points, God is always with us and God is always able to empower us in these difficult moments uh, throughout this year. So 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul and it's to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, and this letter was probably written around AD 53 to 55. Uh, this church had many, many problems. Um, some we're going to look at, and some we've already looked at uh, over the last uh, couple of years uh, through this series. Um, if you want to hear any of what we spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through to chapter 6, then you can do so on our website. We have a number of different sermons that examine all the different aspects of these chapters. Um, and if you were to do that, you would see that Corinth had this major problem, particularly in three different areas. We had a problem with division, they had a problem with social snobbery, and they had a problem with sexual immorality. And so as we start reading 1 Corinthians, it feels like chapters 1 to 6 are very much Paul firefighting these issues. He wants them to see that the sinful choices we are making in these areas is taking them away from the truth of the gospel, and more importantly, it's pushing them away from intimacy with God. In effect, they're rejecting the work and the leading of God in their life, to pursue a sinful lifestyle. So church division, social snobbery, and sexual immorality. And then Paul moves on to the subject of marriage. And Paul talks about this subject as it's connected to these issues. But in particular, he talks about the subject of marriage in light of the issue of sexual immorality, a problem evident outside of the church within the Corinthian culture, and also sadly evident inside the church. Uh, in many ways, uh, sexual immorality was just as bad or even worse within the church in comparison to what was going on outside the church in the surrounding Christian culture. So that's really a context for us. I'm aware there's, there's a lot we've looked at, um, but let's just read this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 through to 9. Um, I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. The words will be up on the screen for you as well as we go through this together. So Paul writes these challenging and powerful words uh, for us. So verse 1. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. 
A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish for all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word uh, today. Uh, the title of this mini-series is What is Marriage? What is Marriage? We're asking this question because Paul provides many of the answers to this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And my hope and prayer is that we learn a lot about God. We learn a lot about ourselves through this subject of marriage as found in 1 Corinthians 7. But let me just say at the start, this will not be a comprehensive study on marriage. But my hope is you get a solid grasp on the subject of marriage through 1 Corinthians 7 and also through other passages that we're going to look at. Um, I'm convinced if we, were to op- if we were open to what God says through his word over the next three weeks, we will learn a lot. We will be able to apply a lot to our lives, even if we're married or unmarried. And I say that because Paul is writing to a church in a context very similar to ourselves. Uh, One commentator described what was going on in Corinth as gross, unashamed immorality. Gross, unashamed immorality. There was a sexual looseness to the city unlike any other, which is very much a reflection of our culture and our society today. If we're honest today, we know this to be true. Sexual immorality is an unashamed practice in our culture. In fact, more than that, it's championed, it's celebrated, and at times sexual immorality is even worshipped. And think of how much has changed around sexual ethics. Even in the last 10 years, we've seen so much change in the last 5 to 10 years within our culture. Almost anything and everything is permissible with anyone and everyone. The words from Paul are therefore words for us today. Our cultures are so similar. The Corinthian culture and Scottish culture are very much a reflection of one another. And the words from Paul are also words for us today because as Paul says elsewhere when he's speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's a relevance to Paul's words because of our culture, but there's also a power to Paul's words because they're not just words from Paul, they're words from God through Paul. And these words have power to change our lives for the glory of God. So when we speak about marriage and wisdom, which is the title of our message today, We're thinking about marriage as God's wisdom manifest in the world, making a difference to our lives and to our society. Marriage blesses and benefits each and every person in society, irrespective of whether or not they are married and irrespective 
of what they think about marriage. And Paul points us towards three particular groups that are blessed through marriage. The first group is our wider society, verses 1 to 2. The second group is married couples, verses 3 to 5. And the third group are single people, verses 6 to 9. The institution of marriage has nothing but blessing upon these three groups. When Paul speaks of marriage, he does so with a clear recognition of what it is. Paul's understanding of marriage is really an echo of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and verse, verse 4 through to 6, which are in fact an echo of the words found in the first book of the Bible during the creation narrative in Genesis 2, 24. Jesus says in Matthew 19 verses 4 through to 6, Haven't you read, he replied, but he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this morning, what we're going to do is continue that echo from Genesis to Jesus to the Apostle Paul Throughout church history to DBC, we hold on to the clear words of scripture around the subject of marriage as those who have went before us. So as we look to answer this question, what is marriage? We do so aware of the fact that marriage is God's wisdom on display for all to see. And this brings us on to our first point. We see from this passage the wisdom of marriage for our wider society. Number one, the wisdom of marriage for a wider society. You see, Paul here, in these verses, is addressing a question from a previous letter. In verses 1 to 2, we read these words. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual, sexual relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So can you see what Paul's doing here? He's contrasting sexual immorality with sexual propriety. He's wanting us to understand what's wrong and what's right in God's eyes when it comes to sex in light of the wider society that we live in. And like any gift from God, we can use it in a way that either damages and destroys or we can use this gift in a way that builds up and strengthens other people. And as Paul alludes from these verses, it's the exact same with this gift of sex. Sex is a gift from God. We can use it contrary to God's will and way, or we can use it as a reflection of God, as a means of building up and strengthening our society. And Paul says in verse 2, because sexual immorality is so common. And he says this so conscious of the Corinthian culture of his day and the challenge the church had to stay pure. And to, and to stay consistent. Let me just share uh, five points that I believe highlight what Corinthian culture was like in Paul's day around this whole subject of sexual immorality. And from these points, we see the challenge that this church faced. So point number one, the Acro-Corinth was the most prominent site in the city. The Acro-Corinth was the most prominent site in the city. This was a monolithic rock overlooking the entire area of Corinth. And on the summit stood the temple Aphrodite, who was a Greek goddess of love, beauty, and lust. And in number two, this temple 
maintained a thousand priestesses. These priestesses were basically nothing more than common prostitutes. Number three, the city was destroyed and rebuilt and immorality continued. We don't know if the thousand priestesses were maintained in the temple, but we know that gross immorality continued as before. The culture of Corinth was always the culture of Corinth. Number four, there was no condemnation from Corinthians towards this life. On the contrary, this kind of living was considered to be a normal part of life. There's no evidence of any non-Christian group pushing back on this lifestyle. It was so endemic within the culture. And finally, number five, this loose attitude seemed to permeate the Corinthian church. As we've already observed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, there was very much an issue of the surrounding culture influencing the church rather than the church influencing the surrounding culture. What they once saw as a virtue was now in God's eyes a vice. And they found it difficult to break free from this way of life. So in these initial verses, notice what Paul does. He doesn't just say no to this sexual morality. He offers a solution. He shows them that the gift of marriage and the gift of sex both go together. Paul highlights that this problem of immorality can be solved through marriage. Every time a couple get married, our society has the potential to be better. That applies today and it applied back in Corinth. I would encourage you, you know, when you're driving in your car or you're on a bus or you're walking down the street and you see a wedding taking place, do you pray for that couple? Take a moment to pray for them. Do you pray that God in his common grace would bless that marriage and protect that marriage and use that marriage for his glory? So make no mistake about it. Satan absolutely hates marriage. He will do everything to destroy marriages and especially godly marriages. And that's because healthy marriage is the primary solution to the brokenness of society. Understand this is God's wisdom poured upon society in a very clear and tangible way. And this brings us on to our second point from this passage. The wisdom of marriage for married couples. Number two, the wisdom of marriage for married couples. Paul wants married couples to see what a healthy, wise marriage looks like. We read in this passage, starting in verse 3, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. Now that word duty is maybe a distraction for us today. It's perhaps not a word we would use when we think about sexual intimacy within marriage, or maybe it is. But understand that a husband has a duty to his wife, and a wife has a duty to her husband to be sexually intimate. It's a command from God to enjoy your spouse in this way. And Paul moves on to show us in verse 4 the equality that exists within marriage, especially around sexual intimacy. The husband and wife are there to serve one another. There's a mutuality to this gift of sex that we read. We read in verse 4, A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. So there's no selfishness in what Paul is describing here. There's a powerful picture of the gift of marriage and the gift of sex together for the glory of God. And Paul continues in verse 5 in his message to husbands and wives. Do not deprive one another of sexual intimacy, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again 
Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is saying here that keeping yourself from sexual relations with your spouse is not healthy. Rather, there should be a mutual agreement as husband and wife, a commitment towards one another, towards the outworking of this gift on a regular basis, except, except when you decide to spend time in concentrated prayer. Now, when Paul mentions prayer here, that doesn't mean that it's one or the other, sexual relations or prayer. Now, what Paul is getting at here is there must be or there can be a time where prayer is, is a focus. There's a concentrated time of prayer within the life of the couple. So much so that sexual relations are put to the side. But notice that Paul says that couples should not mutually abstain from sexual intimacy for too long as the enemy may use this in such a way that results in one or both of the spouses falling into sexual sin. Paul goes on and he continues in verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. In other words, it's not expected that you do abstain from sexual relations with one another. Instead, there's permission. Permission is there if you feel led to focus on God through a time of prayer together. So it's a fascinating section in Paul's letter because to put it bluntly, Paul's emphasis here in scripture is that married couples should have a healthy sex life. A marriage that glorifies God through the gift of sex together. But he does so assuming that we already have healthy prayer lives. Or rather, a healthy prayer life is something that we should see as important or paramount within the marriage. And possibly characteristic of your own marriage right now is that you're neither sexually intimate nor are you praying together as a couple. You're the opposite of what Paul is calling us towards within this passage in both of these areas. And so I just want to leave a word for married couples watching us. I would ask you to prayerfully consider what Paul says here and to live out a marriage that's characterised by both sexual intimacy and prayer for the glory of God and for the mutual edifying of one another. So for Paul, this is a wisdom of marriage for married couples. And then this leads us on to our final point. Point number three, the wisdom of marriage for single people. The wisdom of marriage for single people. Paul, uh, writing as a single man, says this in the final few verses of our passage in verses seven through to nine. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. <clears throat> I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. In this passage, there's a danger that we think the Bible says something it doesn't about marriage and singleness. You might misread this passage. You might misread these words and think the godliest option is singleness. Like the self-controlled ones are the single ones, and the married ones are the ones who are out of control. And I can hear single people saying, Amen, preach it. And that would be a wrong interpretation on marriage and singleness. Something that we do at DBC is let the Bible interpret the Bible. We need to understand what Paul is getting at here, and we need to understand what the whole Bible says on one particular subject. And as we look at what Paul says here, we can get a firmer grasp 
of what he's, the, the point that he's making based upon what other passages say. And what the Bible says about marriage and singleness is that they are both equal gifts from God. Marriage and singleness are both equal gifts from God. The Bible also says that the normal pattern for people in God's eyes is to be married. Genesis 2 and verse 18, God says these words at the very start of creation. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. I will make a helper corresponding to him. But Genesis 3 really changes everything. Man rebelled against God. Sin came into the world. Our desires and our decisions were all tainted by the effects of sin. And the result is that God provided an exception to his own rule. Meaning that the gift of singleness was, was and is equally pleasing in God's eyes alongside the gift of marriage. J.E. Adams in his book Marriage, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible says these really helpful words. Uh, there are people whom we might say God has singled out for himself to lead a life of celibacy for the sake of his kingdom. And so the wisdom of marriage for single people is that marriage as an institution presents single people with an opportunity to maximise their singleness for God. They can embrace the fact that being married isn't better or worse than being single. It's according to how God has gifted each one of us in the particular season that we find ourselves in. Single people can know that in their singleness or if they one day become married or if they continue as single, no matter what, God is always fully pleased with them as they live for Jesus, for the glory of his name. This maximising their singleness for God may be a maximising of this gift in anticipation of one day replacing it with the gift of marriage. Or it may be a maximising their singleness for God out of a firm conviction that this is what God has called them towards for the rest of their lives or until God leads them otherwise. Or until God takes them home to be with him in eternity. Paul here in this passage wants the Corinthians to see that singleness is a good gift from God. Let me just say that again. Singleness is a good gift from God. And as we see later on in this passage and elsewhere in scripture, singleness is a gift which enables you to be more effective in the work of the kingdom compared with married people. And I'm saying all of us recognising that I do get what it's like to be single. I was single for many years. And I remember there were moments where it felt like I was treated almost like a second class citizen in church. Maybe that, that was my interpretation of events. But sometimes in church, it felt like you hadn't made it unless you were married. And that was a, that was a painful experience. And that was and is complete and utter nonsense absolute rubbish there's nothing more opposite to what scripture says paul here offers singleness as a tremendous blessing and an absolute gift at dbc single people are welcome here single people play an active role within the life of the church and we are convinced that singleness as difficult as it can be at times is an absolute gift from god a gift that enables you to serve and enjoy life in ways that other people don't so my encouragement to you today is, if you're single, to maximise this gift that God has given you. To be content in the season that you find yourself in and watch how God uses this gift in such a powerful way as a vehicle for mission 
as a means from which other people are transformed through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So the wisdom of marriage, marriage is one of two equally God-glorifying paths. First path is marriage, the second path is singleness. It's not one as more important than the other. And so maximise your gift, whatever that gift might be, and wherever you're at, for God and his glory and for your own good. So for your missional communities uh, after the service, um, if you have an opportunity to meet during the week as well and to go through these questions, these are, these are some things you might want to talk about. So three questions for you. First one, how do you think our culture views marriage today? How do you think our culture views marriage today? Make no mistake, there's a clear difference between how the church and Christians understand marriage and how our culture views marriage. Number two, in what ways can people maximise their marriage or their singleness for God? And how are they each a gift from God? So in what ways can people maximise their marriage or singleness for God? And how are they each a gift from God? And number three, how can we pray for marriages in the church and in our society? How can we pray for single people in the church and in our society? And then take some time to pray for them individually. And as we close, you know, I wonder, as, as we've talked about all of this, you know, we've talked a lot about different practicalities around life, but it all can be rooted in the reality of what God has done for each one of us. I just want to ask a question as we close. Um, have you put your trust in Jesus? None of us will make any sense to you unless you've put your faith in Christ. Um, all that we've been talking about points us towards the reality of God stepping into our lives and bringing about real transformation. So as we sing, there's an opportunity for you to do three things. The first is to say thank you to God. Thank you, God, for creating me. Thank you, God, for gifting me in the season that I'm in. And thank you, God, for helping me in so many different situations. Second thing you can do is to say sorry. God, sorry for all of my sin. Sorry for all the ways in which I choose to reject you and turn my back upon you. And the third thing you can do is say, please, God, please help me. Help me to live for you with all that I am. So thank you, sorry, and please. I would invite you to make a decision today to follow Christ. You can do that in two ways. You can click on the prayer button if you're watching this live and someone is ready to pray with you and to pray for you. Or if you're watching this recorded, you can contact us on social media or at info at denisonbaptist.co.uk. So this is now a time for us to worship in light of all that we've looked at in this passage, a very difficult passage for us, but a very important one. We now have an opportunity to respond and worship, to recognise that God cares about every single detail of our lives and he is at work in every area of life for his glory. Let's respond now and worship. Before we do that, we're going to pray together. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing reality of your word and how relevant and practical it is for each one of us today. We recognise the challenge of your word today and we pray, Lord, that we would be obedient and responsive to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from each and every attack of the evil one. Guard our hearts and minds. Help us to enter this new week all out for you. And Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who maximise the gift of marriage or singleness or widowhood, whatever it might be, for your glory and for your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, guys. God bless.